Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. And this morning we're going to continue with a study in the Psalms. This time we'll look to Psalm 95, if you'd like to turn there, Psalm 95. I've entitled the message this morning, Let Us, Let Us, a Congregational Commitment, based on this Psalm 95. And we'll read through the whole Psalm this morning to begin with, and then we'll deal with just a portion of it as we go through our study. So Psalm 95, beginning at verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Some of you might recognize a, we'll stop right there. At the, well, let's read the whole thing, I guess. We'll read through it. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. First half of the psalm, which we'll deal with this morning through verse 7a, is an exhortation and a reminder to worship God. The second half is an admonition and a warning that if you don't, worship God, you don't obey God, you will suffer the consequences which the Israelite people did when they didn't do what God asked them to do. So kind of a dual psalm, but we're just going to deal with the first part this morning. In the previous message that I taught last week, uh, we taught on the I wills of Psalm 9, and the focus on that particular psalm was an individual commitment to, the pra- to praise God with your whole heart, and that whole heart is an important uh, statement. It's um, half-hearted praise really isn't praise. As I said last week, half-hearted love isn't really love. And half-hearted service to God is not really true service to God. So we need to be devoted to giving our praise and honor and glory to God. We need to be devoted to loving God with all our hearts. We need to be devoted to doing all things as unto him. And that's important that we keep that in mind because it's easy to be distracted, easy to think on other things. Uh, that we deem are important, but we, as God's people, should find that our greatest importance is to praise and worship him. And as we do that, as we focus our attention on him and on his truth and on on him in particular as as our God, it should lead us to begin to marvel at and remind ourselves of how great a God he is by looking back and seeing all his marvelous works that he did. We noted that in in Psalm 9. It refers to that. Uh, all that he's done in history, and particularly, of course, his plan of redemption. And it's interesting that as God sovereignly works out things and brings together uh, a message like this, or for Brant's, uh, that he begins to kind of weave little pieces into it. And just out of God's providence, I just happened to notice that the psalm of meditation this morning um, had a, a phrase in there that was kind of tied into our... Uh, our lesson today, or at least going back to what we had before, that was Psalm 70, 78. There we go. Look at Psalm 78. And notice in Psalm 78 how it begins. It's a long psalm. 
Give ear, O my people, to my law, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works, which he has done. That's our admonition as parents, grandparents, is to tell to the generations to come the wonderful works of God. And so as we think about that individual desire or, or need for us to do that, we should also think about doing it as a congregation. We'll get into that a little bit. Especially, of course, telling generations to come the grace of God, the mercy of God in Christ and paying for our sins. We are saved by God's grace individually, correct? We're not saved as a group. God doesn't bring a group of people and redeem them. He brings us individually through the power of the Holy Spirit, working in our hearts, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And so there's, he doesn't save us to become individual believers or Lone Ranger believers. He saves us, rather, the scripture tells us over and over again, as individual believers to be part of the body of Christ. We are part of that covenant community, the eternal kingdom of God. And though we are to both worship and serve God as individuals, obviously, we should also do it together as a united body. And that's kind of what this psalm is about, a congregational commitment to praise God. You might recall from our study on the spiritual gifts bestowed upon us by the Holy Spirit when we came to faith in Christ, that those gifts were given for the glory of my name. No, they were given for what? The edification of the body, to build one another up. They would be used to encourage each other uh, in the body of Christ. And so if you have a gift, be it a gift of mercy, a gift of exhortation, a gift of uh, administration, whatever it is, your goal in using that gift is not to gain the applause of men, have people come and pat you on the back and say, boy, you're wonderful. Great, great use of that gift. Your goal is to use it to bless and edify and encourage your fellow believers, whether they notice or not that you have that gift. And that's, I think, important. Certainly, it would be wonderful if you know what your gift is and therefore you can use it you know, uh, judiciously and wisely under the guidance of the Spirit. But even if you don't know exactly what your gift is, if God gives you a desire to show mercy, for instance, say you have the gift of mercy and you're not really sure you have it or not, but you have a desire to be compassionate, to help people in need, to reach out to people who are suffering, uh, to comfort those who mourn, uh, to be just an encourager to other people. You can have that gift without really knowing you have it and use it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and be a blessing to the congregation as you do that. So spiritual gifts are to be used for encouraging the congregation, not for self-aggrandizement is the point. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 13 and 14, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink of one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And again, in verse 20 of that same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. The point being that, yes, we are individuals, we are saved individually, but we are all one body of Christ. Therefore, we should minister to one another as a body. And as a body, we should worship and glorify God together. And that's why we come here today uh, in this building to gather as a group of believers to worship and glorify God together, not to individually stand out show off for each other or in any way get attention for ourselves. We come together as a body believers to worship God, and that's the the point of this particular psalm. So we should love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength individually, declare God's mighty works individually, 
rejoice before him and praise his name individually. But we should also delight to come together with other believers to do the same thing. Together, as we encourage and as we edify each other, we can with united hearts and united voices worship him who loved us, us, all of the elect, from all of eternity. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, as I was just noting, uh, glancing through the book of Revelation, uh, particularly in verses 5 and 19, uh, chapter 9 and, and verse nine, and chapter 19, there are no soloists. There's no soloists there. It's always the, uh, the cloud of angels. It's always the cloud of believers that are worshiping and praising God. Choirs. There's no, no praise given to a soloist in the book of Revelation. No, it's, it's a group worship of God. And so we should look in that terms too to seek to glorify God as believers together. Psalm 95 is a picture of that united body. And instead of I wills, it says, as I've already noted, let us. Okay, Reflecting upon a united congregational effort as a body of believers to love and praise and worship our most high God. So let us, as we may together here this morning at uh, Antioch Reformed Baptist Church, let's delve into these first seven verses of this psalm and find our united purpose. And as we do, Interestingly enough, we'll make a reference to a number of New Testament verses that also emphasize that word, let us. Okay, and in fact, I will, I will be quoting some of them, reading some of them to you, but I would recommend just for an interesting study is to go to your Bibles or to, if you have a, a Bible program, you can look up that two words, that let us, and see how many times it's used in the Old Testament and the New to encourage a congregational worship of God, Okay. So, first of all, let's look at what we'll call the call to corporate praise and worship in song in verses 1 and 2. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalm. Four times it says, let us. I think I mentioned this last week, at least in some context, but in my over 50 years of song leading, I've been guided or convicted that our singing and praise and praise to God should not be optional. We should look at it as, oh, no big deal, you know. And that doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what your voice is, whether you have a good voice, a bad voice. Um, we should sing praise to God no matter what our talents are. And interesting, back before I met Kathy, I was part of a at that time, what was called a Sovereign Grace Church. Reformed churches weren't really known that well, but it was called a Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. And the pastor of that church was a uh, very profound orator. He could preach. Boy, he could preach, and you would be just amazed by his preaching. But he couldn't sing worth a lick. I mean, he was just bad. But he was enthusiastic. He loved to sing. And so it was a small church. It was kind of hard to hide his voice, even if everybody else was singing well. But he just, he sang out regardless, even though he couldn't hit a note if he, if he tried. But he was enthusiastic in praising God. That's the point. It's not a matter of your talent. It's a matter of your desire to worship and praise God and to do it enthusiastically because he is your God. He is your creator. He is re, your redeemer. So that's the goal here is that we, we sing praise to God. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully. You can Maybe not have a great voice, but you can joyfully sing as to the Lord. And that's the goal here is to do that for the glory of his name, not for the honor of your talent in this situation. So we shouldn't, the second thing though, not only should we, it shouldn't be optional to sing praise to God, no matter what your voice is, but we shouldn't look upon uh, singing of hymns as a filler in our corporate worship. 
you know, we do, uh, certainly we do have prayer, and we do have the reading of Scripture, and do have preaching, but we shouldn't look upon hymn singing as kind of a, well, we'll fill in with a few hymns here and there, and of course, in the old days, especially in, in uh, old Baptist churches, you'd close with 16 verses of Just As I Am at the end. That's not what it's all about. We should include in our worship these hymns that help us, especially um, to worship God together. In fact, obviously we know the, the preaching of the word is preeminent. That, that's the most important part is the preaching of God's word. That's why we're here together. But the singing of godly scriptural hymns, uh, in fact, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, prepares our hearts, helps us to set our minds on things above, that we might digest that preaching as well as giving us a, a more of a heart towards God's praise. So it's important that we don't look upon hymns as just that what fills in the spaces, so to speak, between the prayers and the scripture reading and the preaching. It is part of our worship, and therefore we should participate in that worship as much as we're able to do so, regardless, again, of what our voice is like. And we do that picturing, I guess you might say, anticipating being in God's presence and as though he was there, physically there. If Christ were to come in to our service and stand up there in the pulpit, would you kind of mumble through a hymn or would you be indifferent to that hymn? No, you would sing praise to him, wouldn't you? You would use your, all of your energy, all of your desire to praise the Lord. So we should have that aspect when we come together to not hold back, not look upon hymns as kind of an option or I'll sing if I can, but to do it enthusiastically as unto the Lord. Do it joyfully. Do it joyfully. Psalm 122 and verse 1 says, I was glad, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So when we come together on Sundays to worship, it should be a solemn occasion because we are worshiping God, right? In that sense, there's a solemnity to it. But it should also be a joyful time of singing singing to the rock of our salvation. And so that's, as it says there in verse 1, that should be our balance, okay? We're coming to worship God, so there's a, there's a certain solemnness about that. But there's also a joy in worshiping the one who has redeemed us and brought us unto himself. I was glad. It shouldn't be, oh, I have to go to church this morning, or I have to sing these hymns because it's part of the you know, worship service, or I'm expected to because I'm a believer. No, it should be a joy, to come into the presence of God and worship him in song. Hymns cannot, at least in my opinion, and should not be sung in monotony or without feeling, particularly without joy, because they're sung to God. Again, here's the point. They're sung to his praise and honor and glory, not to impress your fellow saints because you want to, or you want to appear more spiritually minded than the people around you because you're so worshipful. No, it should be done with his glory in mind. In fact, if you are, my personal opinion is, if you are singing to impress others, if you are singing because you want people to see how talented and how wonderful you are, stop. Stop. Don't do that. Humble yourself and seek to glorify God. Psalm 100 verse 1 says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. That's, that's not a suggestion by David. That's, in a sense, a command by the Holy Spirit through the lips of David. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Come before his presence with singing. That doesn't sound optional to me. That sounds like a, a demand, because we should. We are to sing unto the Lord. That's, I think, probably more important than anything else, is that we're thinking, of why are we singing? You know, what is this 
song all about. Is And some hymns, uh, be granted, aren't as perhaps as scriptural as others, um, but we should sing as though we're singing to him, that he is our audience, so to speak. Um, that should be our goal. We're focusing upon him and what he would desire to hear from our lips, which should be joy, which should be thanksgiving, which should be praise. And we should do it with his praise on our lips, regardless of what others, what others think of us, no matter whether anybody's listening or not. He is our rock. Notice it says there in verse 1, he is the rock of our salvation. Spurgeon said this regarding that statement. God is our abiding, immutable, and mighty rock, and in him we find deliverance and safety. Therefore, it becomes us to praise him with heart and with voice from day to day, especially should we delight to do this when we are assembled as his people for public worship. So as we gather for God as God's people, that should be our goal, to praise him for who he is, for his deliverance, for his mercy, for his safety. In his Treasury of David, Spurgeon also made this observation when commenting on this particular psalm. He said, it is to be feared that very much, even of religious singing, is not unto the Lord, but unto the ear of the congregation. Above all things, we must in our service of song take care that all we offer is with the heart's sincerest and most fervent intent directed toward the Lord himself. So there's the admonition, sing as unto the Lord. Again, regardless of what other people think of you, regardless of how big or small your congregation is or how talented they are or lack of talent, direct your worship, direct your singing to the Lord. That should be our goal. We also note there in verse 2, that it says, let us come before his presence. Stop for a moment and think about that. Let us come before his presence. How would you come into the presence of a great king? Would you be careless? Would you be sloppy? Would you be disrespectful? Would you be indifferent? Can you imagine yourself coming before your creator, the most high God, with anything but humility and reverence? One day, each of us will stand before the face of the judge of all the earth. Will we be ungrateful or will we be exceedingly thankful, even full of thanksgiving in his presence? If you have been saved by his grace, then I would think it would be the latter. Matthew Henry made this comment on these first two verses. He said, let us worship and bow down and kneel before him as becomes those, and here's the, the important part of the statement, who know what an infinite distance there is between us and God. And he goes on to say, how much we are in, but how much we are in danger of his wrath and in need of his mercy. We need to have the proper perspective of who our God is and who we are. What a great distance there is between man and God. And therefore, how much more should we be in awe of him, in humility before him, and worship him and giving him the praise and honor and glory he deserves when we deserve nothing but his wrath. Asaph exhorts us in Psalm 50, in verse 14, he says, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. I like that phrase because the Most High gives us a picture of, of God up rather than kind of on our level or you know somewhere just floating in the clouds. No, he's, he's Most High. He's way beyond our comprehension, way beyond anything we could imagine as how holy and righteous and just he is. We should pay our vows to the Most High. 
In our text, uh, the latter part of verse 2 kind of echoes. You'll notice there echoes the last half of verse 1. But then it recommends a means by which we can praise God. In other words, by joyfully and enthusiastically singing to him via the very psalms that we're reading here. I know both Branson's family and mine have at some point in time had the pleasure of learning to sing the psalms, and perhaps at some time in the future we as a congregation could learn to do likewise. I think it would be a blessing. What a better way to sing praises to God than via the very songs that the Holy Spirit has inspired the Old Testament writers of this book to record, using his very words to sing his praise. I think it would be a blessing if we had the opportunity to do that. Let's move on now to a few more verses. We'll look at what we'll call the reason to worship, reasons to worship, in verses 3 through 5. While the psalmist has rightly exhorted us here to praise God with joy and thanksgiving, primarily for who he is, the rock of our salvation, he now turns in these next three verses to give us more reasons why we should praise him. Let's read verses 3 through 5 again. For the Lord is the great God, and the great king above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. While the psalmist is focusing on praising God, he asks us to look back again at the works of God. Without question, the Lord is the most high God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and thus he deserves our undivided attention and praise. And Spurgeon made this comment. He says, he, God, is great, for he is all in all. He is a great king above all other powers and dignitaries, whether angels or princes, for they owe their existence to him. As for the idol gods, they are not worthy to be mentioned. This verse and the following, referring to these verses 3 through 5, this verse and the following supplies some of the reasons for worship drawn from the being, the greatness, and the sovereign dominion of God. As we talk about God, as we think about him, we should draw our praise from who he is. He is sovereign, he is great, and he has dominion over all things, all things. If we know the God of scriptures by faith, we cannot help but be in awe of him and how great beyond our comprehension he is. He made the earth and all things in it, including each of us. Verse 4 can be read this way. In his possession are the deep places of the earth. He owns it all because he sovereignly designed and made and controls it all. As R.C. Sproul so boldly stated many years ago, if there is one random molecule in the universe that is not under God's control, then he is not God. If there's anything that he has no control over or it's not his possession, then he's really not God because he made them all. He therefore rules over them all. He controls them all. He can do, dispense with them all as he so pleases. As we've been studying in CLA recently, uh, when Brian was teaching the 1689 Confession, he is sovereignly in charge of everything that happens, good or bad, in the world, yet he is not responsible for sin. That's sometimes hard to swallow, but if that is true, and it is, as we know from Scripture, then we as, as his people can follow the advice of the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 16 when he says, Let us, there we are again, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If he is the God he says he is, and we know he is in Scripture, then 
we can come before him with our petitions, with our prayers, with our desires. And we know that he is a God of mercy and he's a God of grace that will help us in our times of need. Whether it be a crisis, whether it be just a time of confusion or uncertainty, whether it be uh, a desire to see his hand working in a certain area, we can come before him because he is our God, because he is who he says he is. We can come before him with boldness, knowing he's a God of mercy, he's a God of grace, he's a God of compassion, he's a God of understanding, and therefore we can come to worship him. And that's a reason to worship him. That's who he is. We have such a God. Verse 5 here in our text refers back to Genesis in the creation account and the making of both the magnificent seas as well as the dry land. He gave the seas their borders, and he shaped the dry land, and then he altered them both with the great flood according to his divine purpose. It was not an accident. He made the earth perfect to begin with. Man sinned and began to continue this sin and continue this sin until there was no one except Noah who was righteous in all the earth, and therefore God changed everything according to his divine purpose. We are to be good stewards of this earth, obviously, because God gave it to us. He made it for us to live in. But we're not to heed the climate alarmists and the radical ideas which totally ignore historic scientific data, but forget that God is the one who controls the weather and every aspect of his creation. The scripture says he sends the clouds on their patterns. There's not a storm. There's not a hurricane. There's not a tornado. There's not any weather event that he does not control. There's no accidents. There's no, oh, if only we had not thrown so many trash, so much trash in the ocean, there wouldn't be this kind of climate situation. No, God is in control of all those things. And though we are are to be good stewards, we're to take good care of his creation. We're commanded to do so. But all the weather in this whole wide world is controlled by God, not by us, not by the National Weather Service or anybody else. We need to have that sense of trust in him. Certainly, hurricanes and tornadoes can create great tragedies, great losses, both in property and in lives. But he's in control of that. He's on the throne. He's directing them. There's not a single person on earth who has ever died in a a hurricane or a tornado that was not done according to the will of God. And we have to keep that in mind as we worship him. Every breath we take is of him. Every heartbeat that we have is because he desires to keep our heart beating. All things are under his control. We need to have that sense of, of awe and respect and a desire to worship such a God who works all things out. He balances all things out. He keeps this world going. That's something we should give praise to him. He made it. He owns it. He controls it. And when the time comes... When the time comes, he will destroy it again via a, not a flood, but a fire. And we're told that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. He made it. That's something we need to keep in our mind. Spurgeon summed it up this way with this eloquent statement. Come ye then who dwell on this fair world and worship him who is conspicuous wherever ye tread. Count it all as the floor of a temple where the footprints of the present deity are visible before your eyes if you do but care to see. The argument is overpowering if the heart be right. The command to adore is alike the inference of reason and the impulse of faith. Look around you. Be observant. See the glory of God. If any of you have had the opportunity to travel in this world, as some of us have, you can testify of the wonders of God's creative might and wisdom that witness the marvelous details of his creation that work together for our good and for his glory. 
when we look around us and we see in his uh, creation mighty mountains and, and raging seas and beautiful waterfalls and sunsets and plants, unusual plants that grow. Uh, Charity, our daughter, has been kind of a very proficient at raising various flowers all around our house. And some of them are just amazing, not only their colors, but their, their shape. And some of them, their fragrance, of course, the roses in particular. But God designed all those. Charity didn't design them. Florists have, over the years, obviously done hybrids and things they've come up with to make things more beautiful or more fragrant, whatever. But God designed them all to begin with. And we should be amazed, not just at the beauty from the sense of, oh, so-and-so made this beautiful bouquet and therefore they're, they're wonderful florists. Be amazed going back and looking at it was God that designed them. God gave them to us. Whether it be flowers or it be vegetables in your garden, things that you can grow, that he has given you wisdom, look upon that as part of his creation that he's made and be marveling at it, not just taking it for granted. In fact, this again shows God's providence. I wrote this uh, or worked on this sermon probably a few weeks ago, and I didn't know what hymns were going to be selected today. I just put down a line that I thought was appropriate for this particular point. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. It happens to be one of the hymns that Daniel picked out. That, that hymn is very simple, but it speaks of one thing. This is his world. He is the one who designs everything. And if you look and are willing to admire and appreciate in his creation, you'll see his footprints. You'll see his hand. You'll see his wisdom. You'll see his glory in the details of life that he has designed. Even mosquitoes. Tough one, but, you know, we'll go with it. He made it. So give him the glory for that, for all of his creation, and, and appreciate the little details that he puts through. So let's move on a little bit to uh, the next part of our, our, our psalm which is verses uh, 6 through 7. And this is a, again, along with the first two verses, this is a call to worship, but it's all a call to worship our shepherd, okay? And there's a distinct, obviously, message here pointing to the shepherd of the sheep. Let's read verses 6 uh, through 7a. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We'll pause there. You notice there's a break there, as I read earlier, the latter half of the psalm being kind of an admonition. But we'll stop there at verse 7a. Not only are we to come together to sing the praises of our God, but we are to bow down in humble worship of him, even without singing. We bow before him and acknowledging who he is. This reminds us, really, of our seasons of prayer that we include in our services when our hearts and our heads are bowed in humble adoration and petition to him who works all things after the counsel of his will. We come before him and worship and bow down, and that gives us that picture of prayer, of submission to him, of trusting in him, of leaning upon him in all things. Kneeling, in fact, gives us a picture here of total submission to him. When someone in olden days came before a king, they wouldn't just come and say, how you doing, king? No, they'd bow down. They'd even kneel before the king. Even in some cases in England, they would kiss the ring of the king to show submission to it. Well, we should have that, even if we're not physically kneeling. We should be humble in heart and mind to come before our God and bow before him, acknowledging that we're totally dependent upon him, particularly upon his love and mercy towards us in Christ. So that picture is important that we have a humble attitude when we come to worship God. He is the most high God. 
He is the king of the universe, and therefore we should bow before him. And what's great, though, about this portion here, as we see there in verse 7, for he is our God. He is our God. He's not someone else's God. No, he is our God. He is the God of all the earth. But as his people, as the body of Christ, he is our God. We should together come and worship him as our God. As a body of believers, rejoice that we can worship together, for he is our God. We all have that sense of loyalty and obedience to him. That's a, there's a wonder in those words when you think about it. He is our God. Who is the, he's the creator of all things. He came to earth and humbled himself to suffer and die upon a cross for us, then rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father eternally to intercede for us. He is our God. That's our God. He did all that for us. That's the kind of God we have. And that should bring a sense of awe and wonder to us, if not especially to worship him and to do it joyfully. <clears throat> Excuse me. Notice it said, let us kneel before him. Not just one or two of us, not just those who feel like it. Let us together bow before him in submission. Let us honor him by singing his praise, worshiping his majestic being, and walking in obedience to his will. Together, as the body of believers, we should be doing that. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says, Seeing then, and listen carefully here, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. Together, we encourage each other by keeping our confession of faith and, and doing united worship of him. Let us together keep our confession. We see in those verses the contrast here between God and his people. His people. We are his people, the sheep of his hand, literally under his care. He is God. We are his people showing his possession of us. He has purchased us via the blood of his only son. So we're his. We're his, and therefore we should be loyal to him. We should be worshipful towards him. We are bought with a price, it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, and that very key word that comes after that, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There's the possession. We are God's. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We need to have that sense of possession, that God possesses us, he's purchased us, he's redeemed us. We're his, we're not someone else's. Our loyalty should be primarily to him. And we, that loyalty should be a united loyalty that desires as a group of believers to worship him together, to give him a united voice, not a you know, different voice here and different voice there or kind of difference of opinion. No, we should be of one mind and one heart and one thought that is to give him the praise and honor and glory that's due to him. If you are God's, if you are God's, then Paul admonishes us again in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 with these words. Therefore, having these promises, the promises he gives us in his word, beloved, let us, there's that phrase again, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If we believe in the promises that God has given us, that we are his and we have eternal life waiting for us once we leave this earth, then together let us, let us cleanse ourselves. Let's put aside all the filthiness, all the, the, the temptations, all the uh, sinful practices we may have been caught up in the past. Put aside those things of the flesh. and Let us come together perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's pursue holiness together. 
Let's encourage each other to lay aside the sins of our life of the past and together worship the, God, the Lord in holiness and purity. We are his sheep. We're his sheep. Therefore, let us make it our business to heed and follow our shepherd. And of course, this hymn or this psalm was written back in the days when that was a prominent uh, occupation there in the land of Israel of a shepherd. And so it maybe meant more to them than it does to us now. Not too many of us are shepherds. Uh, our daughter-in-law is a shepherd of sorts. She has sheep. But the picture is there that they're his sheep. He cares for them. He provides for them. He helps them. He takes care of them when they're injured. Uh, he protects them from harm. We are to have that sense that our God is our shepherd. He is watching over us. He's caring for us. He's leading us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And we need to have that sense of awe and love and respect for a shepherd and trust that he will protect us. He will not allow us to be harmed. <clears throat> we shouldn't be wandering away from him on our own paths, not concerned about how we live or how he, or whether he will come again or not. That's another admonition. As our shepherd, our shepherd is coming back. He's looking for his sheep to be obedient to him. Paul again challenges us with uh, these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 6 through 8. Therefore, let us, again, as a group, not individually, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. As a congregation, we should be on guard for each other, helping each other, but let us together be sure we're not sleeping. We're not just being careless in our Christian lives. We're not being careless in our worship. But let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober, be on guard against drifting away from the faith. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Let us, if we're of the day, if we're his people, then let us live accordingly. Let's live as though we're his. Let us walk in the manner worthy of our salvation. We, individually and together as God's people, the sheep of his pasture, are responsible to live for him and his glory, not ours. <clears throat> Matthew Henry made this comment on this verse. He said, the gospel church is his flock. Christ is the great and good shepherd of it. We, as Christians, are led by his hand into green pastures, by him, we are protected and well-preserved for. To his honor and his service, we are entirely devoted as a peculiar people. And therefore, to him must be glory in the churches throughout all ages. And he refers to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21 as his text in doing that. We are his people. We are to live for his honor and his service, entirely devoted as a peculiar people. Therefore, to him must be glory in his church throughout all ages. We as a church, as a part of the worldwide body of Christ, we have the great shepherd watching over us. Let us follow him here at ARBC. Let us live for him. Let us worship and bow down before him. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 28 through 29, it says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us have grace by which we may serve him acceptably with reverence and a holy fear. That's how we should be approaching our God together as a congregation. 
So let me conclude here with our let us. This psalm is a call, as we've been trying to point out. It's a call to join together with our fellow saints here to worship and to praise and to adore our God while living together in obedience to his will. Therefore, we must avoid contention, conflict, and pursue unity in our worship of God here at our church. Romans chapter 14 and verse 13 says this, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in a brother's way. We should be careful, be careful as we come together that we don't cause stumbling blocks for others. If you know someone has a particular weakness in a certain area, a particular temptation, especially if you're aware of that, we especially as elders should be aware of that, but if, we are, if you're aware of someone who has a weakness, then you shouldn't be goading them in that area or tempting them by making jokes about that particular problem they have. Rather, you should be careful and encourage them and help them, graciously even pray for them to deal with that particular weakness they might have. And that need is for you to show love to them rather than to provoke them or cause them to stumble in any way. We shouldn't go around judging one another. Well, so-and-so is, you know, doesn't understand this or they don't seem to think the way we think or... No, we should rather be patient, be understanding, forgiving, accepting of each other in our various stages of growth spiritually and work together to encourage each other to follow the word and then as the Holy Spirit leads us, we'll become of one mind and one heart in a particular area. But in the meantime, we don't look down upon each other as being lesser than each other. Rather, we together are a body of Christ. We together want the flock to grow under our shepherd and to be strong in our faith. Also, in Romans chapter 14, that same chapter, verse 19, it says, Therefore, let us, here we are again, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. There's a challenge for us here at the church. Let us pursue the things which make for peace. Let's not look for conflicts we can you know, incur and, and get each other into and have arguments over things. Let us pursue peace and let us be careful of how we talk to each other that we might edify each other. Again, what's our spiritual gifts for? For the edification of the body, okay? So we should be looking to edify each other, not provoke each other to anger, not try to, you know, ziggy each other and get each other to feel bad about something or, or make jokes about each other. Certainly we can have fun, we can be, you know, have a good time, but we should be looking to, as a body of believers particularly, to build each other up, to help each other to deal with the crises that come in our life with the challenges we face, with the discouragements, the frustrations, edify, encourage, help each other, make each other feel like we're part of a body who loves each other rather than we're at odds with each other or competing with each other in any way. Paul also reminds us of a couple passages from a couple passages here in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 25 and 26, he says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Okay, if you claim to be a believer... The Spirit of God is in you. Well, then walk in the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit direct your steps, your thoughts. Let us, he goes on to say in that same verse, let us not become conceited, again, here's the warning, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us, there's all these let us, let us become rather encouraging each other, not provoking each other. Let's not be conceited thinking we're better than someone else. Let's not envy someone who might have greater spiritual gifts than we have. Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us 
do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here's the admonition. We as God's people, of all people in the world, should be a light to the world, right? We should be helpful to all. If you have a gift of mercy, you shouldn't just show it to the people of God here at ARBC. You should be merciful to others. But more above all, we especially should do good to those who are of the household of faith. We should be a blessing to one another, encouragement to one another. I mean, are you getting the point here, beloved? I mean, we forsaking the idea here of becoming a hermit Christian or a lone ranger Christian, make it your priority, make it your priority to gather with the saints at every opportunity to worship and serve him who is our God. That's the goal here as we, as we form a congregation, as we part of a congregation, wherever you might be, we should be looking for every opportunity to bless and serve one another, or encourage one another, to jointly worship together our God. There's a passage here in Hebrews that probably should be familiar to all of us. It begins with those two words, let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, as we look for Christ to come. We should be encouraging and exhorting one another that we would not despair, we would not be discouraged, but rather we'd be encouraged to build up and look to him in hope with the trust that he will come in due time, exhorting one another, encouraging one another. First John chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Beloved, let us, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. That's kind of a summation, you might say, of this part of the psalm that speaks of us encouraging each other is we are to love God with all our hearts and minds and souls and strength. We are to worship him. We are to sing his praises. But let us love one another, for love is of God. And if everyone that loves is born of God and knows God, then we should together love each other. So, in summing it all up, O come, O come, my dear friends in Christ, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are his people. Together, let us submit to him as sheep and to him be glory in his church now and throughout all ages. Amen. Let's pray.